Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. Hello, everybody, to yet another episode of This Month in Sales Enablement. My name is Felix Kruger, and I am joined again by Devin McDermott. Devin, how are you today? Hello, Felix. I am terrific. I feel like time is flying. We're having crazy heat waves across the US. And as you know, I live in the desert, which is really, really hot in general. But last weekend, it was almost 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so that's 49 degrees Celsius for those keeping track. <laughs> and it's been really bad. So I'm not leaving my house except Last weekend, I did go to LA where it's about 40 degrees cooler. But thankfully, tonight in the desert, we have team eyes to keep us cool. So I'm feeling great. Amazing. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, yeah, I'm very well too. It's not, I mean, Australia, it's winter over here. I know. It's been quite mild too, but obviously not as crazy as it is over there in America and also in Europe. Are you near Death Valley? I think that's the hottest place on earth right now. We are way too close to Death Valley for my liking. And yes, it is very hot there. All right. All right. So from the hottest place on earth to the hottest show in enablement, <laughs> this month in self enablement, you will be happy to know that we have once again, a action packed agenda ahead of us. We've got a research report. We have a bunch of articles. We have a few AI articles and insights, as you would expect. To kick things off, I just want to share a episode that I have recorded previously, not too long ago, with Paul Butterfield over at the Sales Enablement Society. And I spoke about stakeholder relationships and stakeholder management. Great conversation I had there with Paul. It's always great to speak to him. That was also in line with one of the most popular episodes that we have on this podcast featuring Devin, who also spoke about stakeholder management. So anybody who's keen to upskill on that front, please make sure to tune into that one to touch on that episode and the topic of that episode. And also because Devin, you're such an expert in that area as well. I'm curious to hear throughout your career, you've climbed up the ranks in the enablement world. Have you early on in your career found any particular 
roles difficult to engage with? So I'm not talking about individuals here, but yeah. typical roles that are oftentimes difficult to engage with and to align. And how did you go about actually becoming more effective in engaging these roles? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. I think oftentimes your executive leadership team and senior leadership team, any folks who have either never worked with enablement before or who've worked with enablement in a very different capacity than our team is delivering enablement can always be challenging stakeholders to work with. Oftentimes they think they understand what you do and how you partner, but it's you know time well spent to level set with those folks and ensure you have very clear expectations and alignment around what enablement is, what it isn't, and how you partner. But I'd say probably a little bit earlier on in my career, uh, one of the bigger challenges I had was working with my counterpart in product marketing. So we were both leaders at the time. And the issue here was really a lack of alignment around roles and responsibilities. And because that person had never worked with enablement before, they felt like we were creeping into their territory. Like, wait a second, that's our responsibility. And why is enablement coming in here? Why does enablement want to sit with the product team and learn more? So we took some time. We had some challenging conversations, definitely some misalignment. So we spent some time mapping out our team roles and responsibilities, all of the different initiatives that we work on, the different projects that we work on, where there might have been potential overlap and where there was that kind of gray area, because sometimes there can be with functions like product marketing or other parts of the organization. We've defined SOPs or standard operating procedures for how we would tackle those particular situation. So we did get pretty into the weeds on who does what and when, what it means, and then more importantly, how we orchestrate our partnership, our delivery of information, and so on. So yes, it took quite a bit of time, but it was really, really valuable. And once we defined that path, what we learned is a lot of other folks in leadership really didn't understand the difference either. So we use that as an opportunity to educate our executive leadership team, our senior leadership partners, and we made sure everyone had extreme clarity around what each of our teams did, uh, the importance of our partnership, and how we were able to fuel momentum for the customer-facing teams we supported. So that was definitely a challenging one. And again, those little moments have come up again and again throughout my career. But I think just having the conversation, level setting, and getting comfortable just unpacking some of the areas of confusion or misalignment, always time very well spent. Excellent. That's very really interesting. Yeah, I think that's oftentimes a point of friction if there's overlapping responsibilities. I've also seen that, especially in matrix organizations. Yep. Oftentimes, there's a lot of overlapping responsibilities. And yeah, as you said, clarifying those points definitely uh, is absolutely crucial for alignment. I think one of the things that I have seen as a challenge early on in my career was the interaction with senior executive stakeholders. And we come back to that topic over and over again when it comes to the impact of enablement and the business impact being achieved. I think as soon as you speak in those metrics that they care about and you relate that back, especially to financial statements and the sort of world that they're dealing with, income statements in particular, once you're able to speak that language and you're able to relate your work back to those sort of trends that are being discussed on a shareholder basis, that's really where you start speaking their language. And that's where I had to upskill a lot. Absolutely. I don't have an MBA, so I don't have that formal education when it comes to the finance side of things. So I had to do a lot of work in there. But luckily, this is something that's really readily available and a lot of resources out there, even for free, that you can engage to actually upskill on that front. Moving on to the next point in our agenda, we have a report from Highspot, the state of sales enablement. It's funny how they name these reports after my podcast over and over again. Okay, that's my dad joke for today out of the way. I love it. 
just a couple of points that I wanted to point out here. I should also shout out Stephanie Benavides on LinkedIn, who has made me aware of this report. I saw her post and her great summary of that topic. So thanks a lot, Stephanie, also for sharing that link, because I initially couldn't find the report. Really the power of networking there in action. But just a couple of points that I wanted to point out here. Number one, 43% of organizations have visibility into what good looks like in sales enablement through analytics, which is great. You obviously need to measure the impact that your function is able to achieve, even if you are tracking activity metrics. But to me, that also means that 57% of those organizations that have been quizzed don't have visibility into those analytics. And that's really concerning to me because if that is your situation, you really have no sort of evidence if you're being asked what sort of impact you're able to generate whatsoever into your effectiveness. I think that is something that a lot of these organizations that have been part of this survey should definitely brush up on if you ask me. The second insight here that really stood out to me, and again, I've only seen this report this morning, so I'll definitely delve deeper into that one. But this one stood really out to me as well because it said that companies that reduce enablement headcount uh, last year report 12 percentage points higher rep turnover and are also 10% less likely to have increased revenue in the past year. So really two significant metrics, if you take them by themselves, already are quite significant. But if you combine them as well, that really goes to show that there is that positive impact if there's an enablement function and you need to be resourced appropriately. Higher rep turnover, I think that really goes to show that enablement is also a function that positions an employer from a self perspective to be setting up their staff up for success. It obviously also has an impact on the compensation of the sales reps, which they might not be hitting their targets. But rep turnover also means that you have to spend more time and therefore money to replace staff. And again, from a business impact point of view, if you talk about that, the costs involved in hiring staff, not only from a recruiter fee point of view, but also the time of everybody involved, very significant. So quite profound insights here. What's your take, Devin? Is that something that you have seen out in the market as well? Yeah. And this is like hot off the presses, this report. I just saw it this morning as well. We've talked about this via some of the other enablement reports of continuing to invest in education and development for your teams, even during a downturn in the economy or when you're reducing your staff, you can't just take away the support that your teams have been receiving, right? Employees want to be developed. They want to be grown. They want to have all of the tools they need to be successful. Gosh, I wish I could remember which report it was in. But we did talk about how when we move back into an upswing, the teams who lost that dedicated enablement support and those resources for growth and development are going to leave your organization as soon as other opportunities come by because they know they're not being invested in. So that one is not surprising. And hopefully more folks look at this type of data as we move into challenging economic times that there's places where it makes sense to cut and reduce spend and other places where it can dramatically harm your business. And to your point, it costs a lot to bring in a new rep, just like it costs a lot to bring in a new customer. We want to retain the talent we have and we have to take care of them. I could probably spend the entire hour talking about visibility into analytics because there are definitely some challenges on that front when you look at a startup organization where they're maybe testing a number of different strategies or they're figuring out what are the key metrics and insights they want to be tracking. So that one, I think to your point, we need to level up 
how enablement is engaging there. But there are sometimes organizational challenges that can make that a little bit difficult. But I'm super excited to dig into this report because already I'm like very keen on these insights. We will share a link to this report as well as all the other resources that we are covering today in the newsletter of this month in sales enablement. So for anybody interested in that one, please visit us at goffwd.com. You will see there on the top end of your screen a subscription opportunity and you will receive all these resources that we cover today into your inbox with our insights attached as well. So moving on to the next item on our agenda, we have the 17 key revenue enablement stats coming out of S3. So Allego, one of the vendors in the enablement space, has recently run their S3 conference. In this article, they've highlighted key statistics and trends in revenue enablement with a focus on the challenges faced by sales, enablement, and marketing teams. And they have specifically discussed in this conference like three major trends including generative AI, which is also something that we touch on later on, digital selling and team selling as well. Some of the challenges that they've highlighted as part of this conference was engaging buyers, the noise from competition and changing buyer preferences. Now, just a few stats that they are sharing here. And Devin, I'm also really keen to get your take on these ones. What they're saying here is that 67% of buyers are opting away from in-person interactions, according to McKinsey. Is that also reflected in the way you see your sales team interacting with the market? I'd say not necessarily my sales team, but I am seeing this trend in general. And even as a buyer, you know, I love purchasing software. I love engaging in buying cycles. And I will say, as a buyer, I am doing as much research as I possibly can. I'm using generative AI to do a lot of that research. We have Reddit now, or you have boards tied to different enablement, tech stacks, and things like that. So I think buyers are definitely doing a lot of work in advance of having a conversation with your teams. And when you have those live interactions, they better be meaningful. They better be adding something new to the conversation versus rehashing information that I may have already gathered. So I'm seeing this in general in myself and in some of my friends who are in enablement in other industries. I'm definitely seeing a shift here. So just another stat that they are calling out here is that buyers are up to 70% through their research before they're contacting a sales rep. So this is something from Forrester that they're quoting here, just something that gets quoted over and over again. Yep. Attention spans have just dropped to just eight seconds, according to Microsoft. And I'm always a bit suspicious of those sort of attention span research yeah. data points. It's hard to make a general statement of that. And the fact that you maybe don't pay attention for one second doesn't mean that you don't pay attention after that. So always a bit suspicious of those. One interesting one here is that by 2026, 30% of B2B buying interactions will happen on digital sales rooms or DSRs. You've also investigated DSRs as part of your work. Do you think that this is something that will come true, 30%? Seems quite a high number. So I hope it does. I think in our last chat, I was like, I think I've been using a DSR. I didn't know what it was. Well, now I'm obsessed. And so I love to see this focus. And as I mentioned before, like as a buyer, I usually have very specific problems I'm trying to solve as an enabler at a fast-paced startup. I don't want to sit on 10 different calls and have you walk me through something or rehash things I already know. I know what I want. I know what I don't want. And again, I do a ton of research. So when I'm engaging with my salesperson on for whatever piece of tech, 
I'm usually rattling off the list. Like, can you send me case studies? Send me an overview video. What is everyone else doing? Send screenshots. And if I get an email with 15 attachments, that's gone. It's lost forever into the ether. I try to search for it. It's nothing. So when I have a DSR and they can just keep resending me that link with the new asset, it's a fabulous experience as a buyer. And so I'm hopeful that we will see more and more of this. And the DSR that I am using right now, it's not something that you can kind of share. So like the BDR can't start it. The AE takes it over. They pass it over to the AM, which would be amazing to keep that one link that you can share with your practice. I think there are others that can do it. We'll talk later. But I think what an incredible way to facilitate a super unified customer experience to ensure our customers have the latest and greatest assets and that they're not sitting there with an outdated pricing guide or anything like that. So I am way too obsessed with DSRs and even seeing my team adopt them basically within a day of us delivering the training has been wild. I've never seen that type of adoption because they're seeing the value. It's easier for them to use and create a really custom experience. So way too nerdy. Apologies, but I love DSRs. So I hope that is true. (laughs) No, no, no. There's no DSR shaming going on here. I absolutely love them too. I think the longer the sales cycle and the more complex the stakeholder environment that you're dealing with as a seller, the more value they add. So big fan of them as well. And you also see more and more vendors actually investing in that space. I think because it's such a crowd pleaser, so to speak. Yeah. Next stat that I want to touch on is 76% of customers, according to Salesforce, expect consistent interactions across departments. Need a bit more context there. 87% of business buyers expect sales reps to act as trusted advisors. Also, according to Salesforce, I think that is fair enough, considering that the value can't be just in rattling off product information. Obviously, you have to build a connection to the business and be a solution consultant. 88% of customers feel the experience a company provides is as important as its products or services. Also a classic data point from Salesforce. Less than 50% of organizations believe a clear majority of sales teams have the skills to be successful, according to McKinsey. So that is really concerning. And I believe that those organizations that believe that either have to invest in enablement to upskill their existing staff or have to have a really hard look at the way they hire sales reps because you obviously should be testing for those skills as part of the hiring process. 54% of sales reps, according to Salesforce, expect to miss quota. That's also concerning. It's super concerning. What do you think that is based on? Is that because the targets are too high or because sales reps don't have confidence in their skills? I think it's probably a little column A, a little column B. And there was a Salesforce stat where they said X number percent of their reps were basically keeping things running which resulted in, I think, a pretty serious reduction in force there. But sometimes I think there might be too many folks on the team. So not enough opportunity to actually achieve your quota or the quotas are too high. There's probably a million different reasons, but I would love to unpack that one because that is, to your point, very concerning. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We should have more reps confident in being able to hit the quota for sure. I used to have a CEO and his attitude towards setting sales quotas was... You always wanted to make it 20% higher than it should be, just because the more ambitious the target, the harder you try. Right. Sucks for those people that are compensated based on it. Great for the business, but right. I just wonder if there's a bit of that going on as well. Yeah, 20% is a lot. Moving on to the next point in our agenda, and there was a podcast that I've come across, not particularly about self enablement, but it was 
a podcast interview with the CEO of Shopify. What they were talking about here was Shopify's approach to creating career paths within the business and also to reduce meeting bloat. And I think this is something that is also interesting from an enablement point of view, if you're talking about career paths for those building teams or for those that want to have those discussions internally about their own careers. Also, when it comes to meetings and when it comes to enablers themselves, but also when it comes to particularly sales manager enablement, who, as we all know, oftentimes have barriers that really stop them from effectively engaging with their sales reps. And lots of meetings is one of those areas that are definitely a roadblock. The first insight here that I just briefly wanted to run past you, Devin, was that they distinguish between uh, crafters and managers. And to me, that sort of terminology can be interchanged. But what they mean here is that the distinction between crafters and managers means that crafters derive satisfaction from building and creating things, while managers focus on overseeing people and processes. And Shopify in particular wants to be crafters paradise, removing obstacles and enabling crafters to do their best work. And what they also say is that they have a management track and a crafter track for different roles. That means that employees can remain crafters without managing people and they can move through the ranks and actually move through the career and ultimately get paid more as well without actually managing people. And to me, that distinction, crafters and managers, so crafters is kind of vague for me. For me, it really describes the hands-on technical work that is being done, mm -hmm. whereas managers is more about managing people, specifying processes and building the machine, so to speak. I'm really curious to hear from you, Devin, what do you actually enjoy more? This is going to be such a cop-out. I love doing both. Ah, you stop it. I really do, which is not okay. It might be why I'm like so stressed all the time, but I'm still building my enablement skills, right? Like there's so much I've been able to do. There's so much more I still want to do, even just testing out new ways of doing things. So I love being able to flex muscles that I haven't been able to flex before in the enablement world, but I also love management. I love developing my team personally and professionally. It brings me so much joy. Like when I get off of a, either a mentor conversation with somebody that isn't on my team or a coaching conversation, it fills my cup. It makes me so happy because I love seeing folks learn something new. I love seeing like that new skill or idea click for them. And, you know, unlocking new skills is it's very, very satisfying. I don't think I could be a manager that's just like, go do this, go do that. Like I love collaborating and ideating and that makes me so happy. So, and I'm also at a fast paced startup. I tend to reside here because you can be a leader and doer in the startup space, but there is so much work to do. So you don't have the luxury of sitting back and just orchestrating. You have to get into the weeds where appropriate, but also empower your team to take on some of those stretch projects. So they get to grow and develop as well. I think there sometimes is a challenge for folks that have maybe been in enablement as a team of one, they're becoming a manager and like relinquishing some of those hands-on responsibilities or those crafter responsibilities can be challenging. So that's something I am working on professionally. But I think for me, being able to do both allows me to keep my skills fresh and learn something new from the teams that I'm working with. So a little bit of a cop out, but I enjoy <laughs> both so much. So yeah. yeah. No, I agree. I think it is healthy for any manager to be still hands-on involved and to also maintain that connection to the people doing the actual work. 
I've been operating in the startup world for the last close to eight years now, and I absolutely agree. You just have to be hands-on. You have to be able to do certain things that you might not necessarily do in a management position in the enterprise space. I think it's a great position to be in to actually pick the fun things out of the things that you have to be hands-on involved in. <laughs> it's so true. That's the greatest position to be in. The second point that I also briefly wanted to touch on with you is the meeting bloat side of things. And what Shopify has done on that front is in early 2023, Shopify initiated Operation Chaos Monkey <laughs> to cancel all meetings with three plus people reinstated no meeting Wednesdays and removed needless Slack channels as well. This was done to increase productivity and to allow employees to focus on their craft. And also something that they have done, which I know is also something that Amazon really strongly advocates for as part of their operations is that they have established a writing culture to help people communicate without meetings. So not using meetings as a platform. And it's really important for them to emphasize frequent written updates, which are much easier to digest and an asynchronous way of communicating compared to meetings. Is that something that the businesses that you have worked for in the past have also tackled practically? Or is that something you believe a lot of organizations are still struggling with? I think it's something that organizations are still struggling with. However, I've definitely been part of startups that moved into their next phase of maturity and actually hired some folks from Amazon. So we did start the, if we had a meeting, there was a pre-read that you had to come prepared to discuss. So you weren't like hashing out the basics. Everybody came well-informed with questions, which was super effective, right? But that does take a fair amount of operational rigor and operational alignment to get that right. So I think like, while I see this, if I took this at face value, I'd be like, oh my God, like this is the greatest thing ever. Let's cancel all the meetings with three people because there are way too many unnecessary meetings taking place. And there are way too many meetings that are a total waste of time. But I don't totally agree that meetings are always a bad thing. Meetings can be super productive if you need to collaborate, share information, workshop ideas, or ideate. They can also be used to set the stage for a much more productive async alignment or collaboration. But I think more often than not, businesses, especially younger businesses, but not always, don't always have it all together organizationally. And they try to do this async pre-read approach without very good results because we're not maybe aligned organizationally on the path forward, on the roles and responsibilities. Maybe there's a shifting strategy. So I do think a few stars need to align and it needs to be a full organizational push to make the move that Shopify has made, along with better and clearer rules of engagement for planning, running, and sharing meeting follow-up. So I love this approach, but there's a lot of organizational work that needs to be done to get it right. And I've seen companies try to brute force their way in. It doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. I think meetings, in a way, are also just a symptom of ineffective communication. Absolutely. The fact that you have less meetings doesn't mean that you suddenly communicate effectively. So I think it's important to also consider if there is ineffective communication in other channels. Suddenly, the important Slack channels, so to speak, that you have defined, is there a lot of time wasted there or what is happening? In startups, I think the situation is often one where you're just too busy in getting stuff done yeah. <laughs> to sit in meetings and wasting time. But if I had to set up a larger organization right now, probably the policies that I would implement is to simply have an agenda for each meeting and an outcome that you want to achieve specified before the meeting so that everybody's actually walking away with something. And then also something that we discussed 
in the context of Amazon is that you don't use meetings as a platform to share information. Yes. I've worked for companies where you literally had meetings and I kid you not, like with 30 people in the room. Oh, yeah. Without a clear agenda with people kind of dabbling around and you are just adding up in your mind how much time and money is being wasted uh, of salaries of people sitting in these meetings. The next one up on the agenda is a article that you have researched, Devin, which is called a thousand ailment by any other name would still drive more revenue. What is that one all about? Talk us through it. I would love to. So this, I'm going to say Shakespeare-inspired article by Doug Bushy explores the different names given to sales enablement teams and how organizational and team objectives can really influence those naming conventions. As a little bit of a side note, I do feel like the title might have been written by ChatGPT, but we're not going to judge Doug because I love it. But as we know, Enablement is a broad term that encompasses activities and processes to help our sellers be more effective, right? However, there are so many different terms used to describe this function. What do we have? We have sales enablement, revenue enablement, go-to-market enablement, growth enablement, sales productivity, and probably about 10 more. And I've personally used most of those naming conventions at some point or another. And personally, none of them really feel like they cover exactly what we do. So these similar yet slightly nuanced names and responsibilities can lead to organizational and even industry-wide confusion about the role and the function of enablement. So the author unpacks it for us. I'm going to run through the Enablement Naming Conventions 101 for our listeners who might not be familiar with what this all means. So sales enablement, the most common iteration. Sales enablement teams are focused on providing sellers with knowledge, skills, tools, everything they need to close more deals. Some of the, the pillars that we include here can be training, onboarding, content development, and tool selection. And as a term, revenue enablement is comparatively broader in scope, I think also pretty common like sales enablement. And so your revenue enablement teams are typically going to focus on providing revenue team members with the resources they need to close more deals. So these teams could include sellers, marketers, customer success managers, sometimes other folks. Go-to-market GTM enablement focuses on those specific needs of your go-to-market channel. So direct and inside sales, channel partners, digital commerce. And finally, growth enablement focuses on improving processes and creating an environment that empowers team members to find ways to maximize revenue growth. So the biggest issue with these varying functions, team titles, responsibilities, is that the lines between these various enablement teams can be blurred and teams will no doubt find that their day-to-day -day responsibilities might overlap with other teams in the organization as we discussed with product marketing or even within the enablement organization itself. So going just one step further, I think we've all seen how the terms enablement, training and development are used interchangeably by some folks and, and by companies and hiring managers, but we know they can have varying meanings from one company to the next. But as long as enablement has something very important in place, I'll let everybody shout it out or say it with me, an enablement charter that specifies roles and responsibilities that are various and unique naming conventions should be less of a factor, making it hopefully much easier for them and to really help our organization to effectively meet its business objectives. If we want to do a, like a little TLDR on this article or this segment, enablement as a function is always going to need to be tailored to the specific needs of an organization, its goals and the teams they support, regardless of what they're called. So 
Overall, I thought this article was a great starting point on the topic of, you know, the new world order of enablement and how this function is starting to morph into something that provides a much more holistic and organization-wide support. If we want to just move right into the next article, because I feel like the next article is an evolution of this article around the ever-expanding enablement focus. This one is called The Road to Revenue Enablement. It's by Nate McCullough. As we know, we talked about this in some of the survey data we saw, the customer journey at many companies is going to involve engaging with multiple departments throughout the journey. Unfortunately, this can sometimes result in mixed messages, inconsistent messaging, and a subpar customer experience. We saw that called out, right? So with this in mind, the author shares his thoughts on how organizations can start building that pathway to deliver a truly unified revenue enablement strategy. The big takeaway here is that by 2026, 60% of enablement functions will be tasked with supporting all customer-facing revenue-generating roles. Again, that initial move beyond just sales enablement. So in practice, sales enablement leaders are starting to realize this, right? That they need to transform their function into a revenue enablement function with a real focus on that holistic customer life cycle. And again, we know that enablement is so much bigger than sales, but sales was sort of the proof of concept for the power of a dedicated function aligned to productivity, aligned to effectiveness, change management, and growth. And what we're starting to see is that most teams want in. They want enablement support. And we're seeing it even with those teams that sit outside of your revenue functions or your GTM functions, and rightfully so. So my very first proper sales enablement role evolved into, yes, it started with sales, then we took on customer success, then we added partners, then support, and finally we brought customer education into the fold. After that point, I've been supporting some combination of these groups as a revenue enabler ever since. And I've even started exploring some of these different titles for my team. So the big difference between sales and revenue enablement lies in the broader scope. So revenue enablement can include things like marketing, customer success, and sales. The whole purpose of this is to create that seamless and very consistent customer experience across the entire organization. Just imagine how powerful it would be to thread a unified enablement strategy across all of your teams. So not only creating product, processes, engagement materials, and strategy that's aligned to customer experience, but also creating efficiencies across your enablement team to build and deliver world-class programs and strategies in a super consistent and repeatable way. This is me just like daydreaming a little bit, but for anyone who's interested in a move to revenue enablement or a more holistic approach to enablement as a practice, the article calls out three key elements that serve as its foundation. First, consistency. So this is ensuring that everyone in customer-facing roles uses the same messaging, the same tools. And as we know, this consistency creates a really nice, smooth, seamless experience for the customer. And of course, it helps us show up as those trusted partners. Next is alignment. This is going to bring marketing, sales, and customer success together to work towards those common goals. It gets everybody in your organization working off the same page to provide the best possible customer experience. Finally, visibility. So this is going to give leaders the ability to see and understand the entire customer journey. And this level of visibility makes it that much easier to identify opportunities, ensuring that our customers receive the right support at the right time. 
You already know my point of view here, which is if you haven't started incorporating enablement beyond the sales team, it's time to open up the club, let other folks in, because implementing revenue enablement is going to be crucial for any organization that's aiming to boost revenue velocity and really enhance their customer experience. Some thoughts here, if you have a really tight enablement strategy, clear enablement processes and SOPs, program blueprints and templates, you can actually start to bring other teams into the enablement fold without that dedicated enablement support to get things going. One other note here, because I want your point of view on this, Felix, the term business enablement that I hear being thrown around every so often is starting to gain some popularity. I keep seeing it more and more, and I love it because it's super inclusive and it recognizes that enablement is not just about sales and customer success, but really equipping all employees with the knowledge, skills, and resources they need to be highly effective and to be incredibly successful. I'd love to talk more about business enablement, but with so much focus on revenue and GTM enablement versus companies just focusing on sales enablement, Felix, where do you see the practice of enablement heading in the next 12 months? And maybe a little controversial, what do you think is the right naming convention for the future of what we know as enablement? I think in the current economic environment, it is more a question of going back to the basics, getting the basics right when it comes to sales enablement, I think will be a focus of a lot of organizations. We've seen so many budget cuts happening and so many people being laid off. I believe that there is a certain degree of trust that has to be regained in the business world around enablement. So I think that's what I will see in the short term and in the immediate future. In the long run, I believe it will expand beyond the borders of just purely sales enablement. Revenue enablement is obviously an obvious destination from a roadmap perspective for that function. But I believe if we really think long term, if that transition is being handled successfully. And if that proven body of knowledge around enablement is really being adopted by the broader enablement community and the revenue enablement side of things is really being nailed and it's really something that organizations consistently get right, I believe enablement and the principles of enablement will be applied to many, many more areas of an organization. And I think business enablement, yeah, sure, why not? Like, I think it's a great term. <laughs> I think it's also worth mentioning that beyond SaaS, the term enablement is actually not that common. You hear a lot of businesses or a lot of industries talking about effectiveness, mm. like commercial effectiveness. So the term enablement is actually something that is quite specific to the SaaS world and also something to keep in mind. So I'm sometimes not sure if the term enablement is really as beneficial as it can be to the profession and if making it less opaque <laughs> or making it more tangible would be more beneficial to the profession. What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, that's super interesting because again, I typically reside in the SaaS space. My current role is the only one that's kind of sitting outside of that. And perhaps that's the thing that's holding us back, right? If enablement isn't something that resonates universally and we are moving into different industries and we're moving out of SaaS or to other places, like what makes the most sense? Is there a universal term that resonates beyond SaaS? And some of what you shared makes perfect sense. It's really interesting. But do we move away from it? Like, how do we get the full wave to shift with us, right? That's right. That's right. We need to make it ceremonial, I feel like. <laughs> you know, a naming celebration for enablement. <laughs> <laughs> I love effectiveness. I've had a title, sales effectiveness, sales productivity. It makes sense. 
it's much more straightforward. So something to think about. That's right. That's right. Let's move on to the next item on our agenda. And yeah, that's the job side of things. We had just a recent announcement that Stephanie Zorabian is retiring, not from her career, but from the job board. It's been a great ride, Stephanie. So thank you so much for doing that. The job board lives on. Paul Butterfield and the Sales and Aidman Society will continue to publish that one. Thanks, guys, for doing that and for putting in the work. I also want to call out the job boards that GTM Buddy are running. So GTM Buddy also have a job board that they curate, that they research, and then assemble here on their website. So it's gtmbuddy.ai slash sales enablement jobs. Again, we'll add this in a newsletter. And of course, the enablement squad also has a job thread in their communities and sales enablement collective also in their Slack community. So lots of destinations for job seekers to look at. So I would definitely encourage everybody who's looking for the next big gig or has been affected by the layoffs recently to look at those resources as well. So once again, Stephanie, if you're listening, thank you so much for doing your thing and for kicking off that awesome job board, contributing to the enablement community in that way. Very much appreciated. Absolutely. Moving on to the AI buskill segment. Yes. This is a favorite, an audience favorite. And <laughs> to kick things off, we have this first article here from CNN Business, which is called This CEO Replaced 90% of Support Staff with an AI Chatbot. Devin, what's happening there? Is AI taking over already? Oh, my goodness. So in this month's installment of AI Buzzkill, we have what I like to call a doozy. So this story is one that I think we'll be hearing more often than not in the coming months and coming years. So in a recent move that has been met with praise and a fair amount of criticism, the CEO of the e-commerce platform, Dukan, has laid off 90% of his support staff after an AI chatbot outperformed them. According to the article, the chatbot was able to respond to customer queries instantly, while the human staff took an average of one minute and 44 seconds to respond. So it comes as no surprise that the implementation of the chatbot resulted in a reduction of customer support costs by 85%. So as I mentioned, this decision has been praised by some for its efficiency and cost savings. However, the ones that have criticized this are calling it heartless and tone deaf given the current economic climate. As the use of AI chatbots across customer service teams becomes increasingly common, it's important to consider some of the ethical implications of this technology. And while chatbots can offer a number of advantages over human agents, it's important to ensure that they're used in a way that is fair and respectful to customers. Even Google Bard has human reviewers to ensure accuracy, safety, and fairness in its results. So while machines aren't fully taking over yet, I think we'll be seeing a lot more human plus machine for the time being, while the machines use this information to get smarter and smarter. But of course, there are still some very valid concerns about the use of AI chatbots, such as, and we've talked about some of these before, but the potential for bias, the high likelihood of getting maybe some questionable responses and results, as well as that lack of human interaction that many customers still crave. So these layoffs are a reminder that AI is already having a very significant impact on the workforce. And as it continues to develop, it's probable that even more jobs will be lost to automation. And so this does raise some important questions about how we can ensure the benefits of AI are shared widely and that those who are displaced 
are doing well and find meaningful new work quickly and easily. We've seen the possibility here, right? Chat GPT is writing college essays. It can dispense pretty accurate medical advice. It can write complex code and more. So it's going to be really interesting to see how the use of AI chatbots and customer service evolves. Just last month, I think in early June, the National Eating Disorders Association AI tool TESA had to be taken offline over contentious and harmful weight loss recommendations. So this news came, I think they announced an organization-wide layoff of staff members who were running the telephone helpline. And this helpline had been in operation for like 20 years. The staff was told the helpline was winding down in favor of this TESA, which is the AI-assisted technology, which again, did not go very well. So lots more to come on this front. But in terms of our AI buzzkill, that part's over. Now we're going to dig into the bright side of AI, hopefully. With Felix. That's right. That's right. <laughs> the new Mission Impossible movie I just watched last weekend Ooh. is actually about an AI that is turning on its creators. What? But the one that I want to call out is a interview practice tool, which is also something that kind of feeds into the job boards that we mentioned earlier. This is really cool. And I've actually tried it out. This is by a platform called Second Nature, Israeli startup that is really focused on sales coaching. So that platform is typically being used by sales reps who want to practice role plays with an AI that responds to them. And what you can do now with this platform for free is you can actually practice for interviews and you enter the details, your name, company name, the desired role, and the job description, and then you paste in your resume. And it then runs a simulation where the AI actually talks to you. So you've got a avatar on the screen that's talked to you and with a more or less uh, human sounding voice it asks you questions and then you respond to it like you would in an interview and there's a recording being created and the ai actually responds to you according to what you say ask follow-up questions and so on so really cool tool and by the end of the whole exercise you are then being evaluated and you actually receive a report that tells you how well you've done. So for anybody preparing for an interview, I think this is a really great tool that you should try out. Again, it's free. And we will also include that in the newsletter if you want to check that out. The platform is called secondnature.ai. Very cool application of AI. So AI is not all evil yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> oh. Just moving on to talk about some of the applications of AI as well. This is an article by McKinsey and they have a dedicated service here, which is also reflected in a publication called Quantum Black, which is all about AI. And as part of this article here, what they specifically talk about, and I briefly want to touch on those items that they call out here, is the applications of generative AI across modalities. And what they describe here as modalities, you might as well call content formats. So there's text code, image, audio, 3D or other, and video. And they call out here that this list is not exhaustive, but nonetheless, a really comprehensive overview of the ways that AI can be leveraged across those different areas. For example, across text here, what they call out is the content writing, chatbots or assistants, as we just covered, search, analysis and synthesis, and example use cases. Notably, a lot of the examples that they mention here is specifically referred to sales and marketing. So 
I think from a revenue enablement point of view, this is certainly something that enablers should be taking a look at just for inspiration. And Devin, I know you have run a workshop recently with your team brainstorming applications and brainstorming ways to integrate AI into your workflows. So this overview here could be one way for anybody who hasn't done this exercise yet to explore those options. So I can definitely recommend that to you. I think some of those areas in regards to video creation is also particularly interesting. It refers to video meetings, for example, which is obviously something that affects a lot of sellers. One interesting item here I found was a live translation. So you can actually in real time translate what is being discussed into other languages. So wow. sales reps operating in diverse markets like Asia Pacific or Europe would find this one useful. They talk about the eye gaze correction. So basically maintaining eye contact throughout meetings while you're looking at the screen. I fried this one. It makes me look really funny because it <laughs> alters the, the look of my eyes. It's so intense. That's right. I was interested in that one because I was like, oh, I'm always like looking at different screens and I want people to know that I'm focused on them. That's oh, that's funny. I think it works if you have a certain eye shape and your eyes are a bit bigger by default. But okay. for somebody with that sleepy look like mine, you kind of look a bit funny. So for me, it's actually a face swap feature. Oh, my gosh, that's hysterical. The other update on the AI front that I also wanted to call out is ChatGPT's plugin feature. So if you are a subscriber of ChatGPT+, Plus, which is the premium version of ChatGPT that gives you access to ChatGPT4, which is the more intelligent version of ChatGPT that is better at logical reasoning and is also more concise, you are able to actually utilize plugins. One particular plugin that I really find interesting is a link reader plugin, which actually allows you to feed in links of particular content pieces or web pages that you can then utilize as part of the prompt that you provide to ChatGPT. So for example, we talked about some of the articles earlier. This is something that could be done, for example, if you want to shorten or summarize articles that you want to share with your sales team to share industry updates, for example, what you could do is you could write a prompt that says, please summarize this article in XYZ amount of words or less for me. And then you paste in the link to the article and then ChatGPT actually reads the article in the link, then creates a summary. So that's one way to bypass the limit, the character limit that you have in ChatGPT. You can also link to documents that are hosted on a public URL. So for example, what you could do is you could create a prompt based on certain reports that you have created internally or certain collateral that you've created internally. From my knowledge, there is for the paid ChatGPT uh, version, there's basically a, a walled version that doesn't utilize what you feed into it to inform other responses. But don't quote me on that one. I would double check that one if you're feeding in really sensitive information. But that could be one way for you to also leverage internal documents in your interaction with ChatGPT. So I just wanted to call out that one. This has been really an enhancement for me for ChatGPT and has made the interaction with it even better. So I can definitely recommend it. I love that. I have chatted with a few legal folks about that, and that is the solution right now. If you do want to use proprietary information, I would recommend not using it in general as a best practice, but that's super cool. Something we can chat about next month is Google Bard. So I've been testing out Google Bard versus ChatGPT to see accuracy of responses. And you can drop links into Bard 
and do some pretty interesting stuff. So I would love to do a little comparison next month. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, but <laughs> I haven't tried out too much. Something that I will check out in preparation for next month. Yes. I just wanted to uh, quickly call out one more resource on Netflix. Check out the documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger. The accent might sound familiar to you if you're a regular <laughs> listener, but the documentary on Arnold Schwarzenegger, absolutely brilliant. First a bodybuilding champion, then a the best paid actor in the world, and then a politician leading California as a governor. So uh, a wild, wild life. Very interesting. Lots of belly laughs. So I can definitely recommend tuning into that one. Do you have any other resources you want to share, Devin? I do. And I was actually just at Venice Beach this weekend. So there were photos of Arnold everywhere because he trained at Muscle Beach. So I will watch that. So currently, this is nerdy. I'm reading up on the world of the SDR. So I'm reading the Sales Development Playbook, which is actually a really helpful book if you are building enablement programs to support the SDR team. But here's one. This might fit into the buzzkill category, but I am very interested in true crime. So when I'm not listening to sales or enablement podcasts, it's usually true crime. That said, I'm also from Long Island, New York, and they just caught a prolific serial killer, the LISK. And so they've been looking for this person for over a decade. This happened a few towns away from where I grew up. Where am I going with this? Well, there is a Netflix special on this Actually, the, unfortunately, the victims of the serial killer called The Lost Girls. Really interesting. If you're interested in that world and you want to learn more, worth checking out. But a palate cleanser, I am gearing up for the Barbie movie this weekend. So, <laughs> And I will also see Mission Impossible. But Barbie movie, I am so stoked for that. So I'll recap next week during our downtime resources segment. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Devin, for joining. And thank you so much for tuning in. As always, please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter on goffwd.com. We will see you next month. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.